0: Getting ready for our summer and construction Sunday school break. So just as a reminder, this is the last class that we'll meet in here. We'll not have Sunday school the whole month of July. And then when we come back in August, Lord willing, this wall will be gone. We'll be in a classroom, and it should be lots of fun and a little quieter. Uh, So what I wanted to do, if you can remember back two weeks ago, I did the first part of Job's response to Zophar, and then we didn't quite finish that. So this morning, I thought I would finish that,
1: and then rather
0: than begin Job 15, we'll just, with whatever time we have left, do a little Q&A and make sure that we're uh, up to speed and where we want to be on Job before we take a break for the five weeks after today. When we left Job, he knew what he had to do. It, It was even in his last response that Job knew that what he needed was a day in court with God. And it's not because Job trusted his own righteousness or his case. It's because Job trusted the grace and the justice of God. And he knew that if he could get in front of him and present his case, that he was blameless, not sinless, but not deserving of this in a one-to-one ratio, the way his friends think he must be for sin. That God would have an answer, and that God's answer would probably be to relent, or God's answer for Job would be to relent. So Jophar tries to scare him away from that, remember? And Far says, Job, that would be a really terrible idea. The worst thing that you could do is to go before God and present your case, because you are really, really, really bad. And the reason I know that you're really, really, really bad is because bad things are happening to you. And bad things don't happen to good people. They happen to bad people, or they happen to people who are doing bad things, and if you'll stop doing the bad things, that's the answer here, not going and appearing before God and making your case. But Job knows what he has to do. He's going to take his case before God. Even with Job's understanding of God, though, this is dangerous. Just as a reminder, Job 13, 13. Let me have silence, and I will speak. And let come on me, what may. So he's going to go in front of God and and accept the consequences. But we just got done with Job's hymn about the power and majesty of God to kind of one-up Zophar's hymn on the same subject, which is that God is big and unpredictable and wise and uncontrollable, and it is a dangerous thing for Job to go and do this. And yet, Job says, I'm going to do it, come what may. And it's really important that we remember, we ask ourselves the question, especially in the context of the book of Job, is it okay to go before God with these kinds of questions and these kinds of accusations? The how long, O oh Lord? The why me? the Is it okay to do that? And the answer, of course, is it depends. It depends on the posture in which you bring those questions before God. And Job's intention, this is uh, Derek Thomas says, is not so much to bring an indictment against God, but rather to hear what indictment God may have against him. Job will appear before God to clear his name. That's his confidence, not in himself, but in God. Job may not understand providence, but he trusts in the God of providence. What God will do is the safest place we could ever be. And it doesn't feel that way. And part of the reason it doesn't feel that way is because we're not able to comprehend the alternatives. We can only look at our suffering in isolation of the one event or the one thing, the one burden. And and we're only able to say, if that didn't happen happen. The alternative is that it would not happen, and that would be better. And if you were analyzing that in an absolute vacuum, just that one thing, you might be right. But That's not how reality works. All of these things are interconnected. They're interconnected with a bunch of other things happening in your life with you, and they're interconnected with a bunch of other people in God's world and in God's kingdom. And when you say, if this thing didn't happen instead of happening, it would be better. What you actually mean is it would be better for me with respect to that one thing. But that's not the way God plans out a universe, because that's not the way things work. God is thinking about the whole of his creation, all of his people, the whole of your life and your progress and being made more and more like Christ. And so he says, this thing, no matter how bad it is or seems to you, this thing, given the whole picture and the whole timeline, is actually the safest and best place for you to be. And when we go to God and say, why? How long, O Lord? When we're saying, God, this is terrible. Do the work in me you want to do faster so that this can go away. Or show me some glorious and gracious providence that could have only come because of this thing so that my broken heart can at least have something to try to mend back together. That's perfectly fine. The Psalms are filled with it. What's not fine once we get to the heart of faith part of the conversation, is, there is no way this could be good. Therefore you are not good. That's the posture that so far thinks that Job will take before God, and it's not the posture Job is taking at all. Job is taking the "Let me make my case and you make your case against me so that I can understand." Now, Job will go right up to the edge, if not too far, on this case of his right to understand. But we're not there yet. And what Job is trying to do here is to hear God's indictment against him. Because what Zophar and what his friends are saying cannot be true. If you look at verses 15 and 16, this God is dangerous. Job said that he's unpredictable. God is a tornado. And yet Job trusts in him. Verse 16, the beginning of it. He will be my salvation. God is dangerous for godless people. God is dangerous for people who resist repentance and resist God's grace and will not turn. Those are the crowd for whom God is dangerous. And while Zophar accuses Job of being in that camp, Job knows for certain he's not in that camp. He will trust in God, and therefore God is not dangerous For him, and that's faith, isn't it? Isn't that at its core what faith is? What you see tells you that God is dangerous. God is not in control. God does not do good for you. And yet, God says, "Oh, that's the exact opposite of that. I am safety. I am good." You belong to me. I will sanctify you and eventually glorify you. And that's faith. Faith tells Job that despite everything he sees, God will save him. And that's why he wants an audience with God. Who's got 13, 20 to 22? Only grant me these two things, O God, and then I will not hide from you. Draw your hand far from me and stop frightening me with your terrors. Then summon me, and I will answer. Or let me speak, and you reply. If God will grant him an audience, if God will take away the hand of judgment long enough that Job can make his case, he believes they'll work this out. He believes he will be vindicated and God will be vindicated. There is an answer to this. That's what Job's faith tells him. There is an answer to this. And if God would just take off the hand of judgment long enough that they could talk about it and Job could make his case, he thinks he would be vindicated. But it's not that easy and even Joe recognizes that it's not that easy and that's what he goes into in this next section of chapter 13 and 14 that as he it's it's so difficult because sometimes people can can give you what is basically the right advice or advice that is 80% true but the 20% that's wrong or the motivation for what they're telling you to do is completely wrong and so you you don't want to give them any credit because no, no, you started in completely the wrong place I don't care that you got to the right answer or you're doing it for completely the wrong reason I don't care that you're doing the right thing and his friends have given him all these warnings especially Zophar about how you don't want to go before God this is not going to be good for you and in the context in which they mean it Job has to argue with them and say no, you're completely wrong that's not who God is now that he's actually asking for this audience with God, and he sets his friends aside, and he's simply thinking about the the idea that I will go before God and I will make my case. Well, that's not so easy. Who's got thirteen, twenty three to twenty seven? Oh, I'm sorry, I gave it out twice. No, no, you're fourteen. <laughs> it would be very likely that I could give it out twice. <laughs> so, it was cool in stereo, though. Go ahead. <laughs> Nick, we started right on time. <laughs> How many are my iniquities and my sins? Make me know my transgression and my sin. Why do you hide your face and count me as your enemy? Will you frighten a driven leaf and pursue my dry chaff? For you write bitter things against me and make me inherit the iniquities of my youth. You put my feet in the stocks and watch all my paths. You set a limit for the souls of my people. Even the person of faith has sinned. Job is a good man. That's the point of the book. But we get the reminder here from Job, that doesn't mean he's sinless. Blameless with regards to this circumstance is not the same thing as sinless. And all of us have sin. And that sin is the root of death and mortality and pain because sin is what keeps us from God. And so when when Job considers how he feels that God has turned from him, that he's arm's length from God, that he doesn't have access from God, Job knows that that happens because of sin. So if Job is actually separated from God in this situation, sin would be the root of it. Job knows, again, with respect to this situation, that sin is not at the root of it. So then what is it? What is this issue about? But he's doing what he ought to do. As much as I talk about us comforting one another, and we don't want to be Job's friends, and when people are suffering, we don't want to start with them. And sometimes, depending on where we are in the process or how close with them we are at all, we don't ever want to bring their behavior or their culpability into the conversation about their suffering. We just want to comfort them in their suffering. But the first thing that you ought to do when you're the one suffering is to have this conversation with yourself. The the easiest answer for what makes a person feel far from God and feel the hand of God's judgment is sin. It's not always the answer. That's why his friends are wrong. It's not always the answer. That's why it's incredibly ungracious and unhelpful to begin there with other people and saying, oh, what did you do? But for you, you better do this. Search me, O oh Lord. Show me my hidden faults. Show me my secret sins. David's doing it in Psalm 51. And i got to tell you guys, most of David's psalms vis-a-vis, or sins vis-a-vis Psalm 51 are not hidden. They are pretty well known to both David and the reader. And yet, even in that context, he's saying, search me, Lord, show me hidden sins, because there are hidden sins. What David did was not the only sin. What David thought, what David planned, what David believed that was false, that drove him to do what he did, all sin. And he asked God to show him those things. Then Job takes a moment to reflect on mortality and death first mortality who's got 1328 to 146 man wastes away like a rotten thing like a garment that is mocking man who is born of a woman is few of days and full of trouble comes out like a flower and withers he flees like a shadow and continues not Do you open your eyes on such a one and bring me into judgment with you? Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? There is not one. Since his days are determined and the number of his months is with you and you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass, look away from him and leave him alone that he may enjoy like a hired hand his day. The previous, what Nick read, this is not as easy as just going before God and just talking it out because sin is a real problem and sin must be dealt with. And now what Daphne read, mortality is a real problem and mortality must be dealt with. We are not immortal. We are not equivalent with God. We, we do not have the, the built in meaning and purpose that God has. We have the meaning and purpose that's given to us. And a life apart from that is fleeting and trivial. We we have the problem of mortality. And unless mortality is dealt with, we have no hope. And then third, who's got 14, 7 through 12? I do. For there is hope for a tree. If it be cut down, that it will sprout again. And that its shoots will not cease. Will not cease. Though its root grow old in the earth and its stump die in the soil, yet at the scent of water it will bud and pull, put out branches like a young plant. But a man dies and is laid low. Man breathes his last, and where is he? As waters fall, fail from the lake, and a river wastes away and dries up, so a man lies down and rises not again. Till the heavens are no more, he will not awake or be roused out of. The The third problem is death. Have you ever seen, Job has a tree that is cut down, and then a little shoot grows out of the stump. You have this this tree stump in the ground with this one little branch with a green leaf coming out of it. And Job says, you know, when you cut down a tree, there's still some life there. The roots will continue to grow, and you'll see this little shoot come up, but when a man dies, he's dead. There is nothing after it. Death is the end. And therefore, unless death is dealt with, there is no hope. So put this all together in context. Job wants to go appear before God. On one level, Job thinks it's as simple as a conversation. If God could hear my case and I could hear God's case, We'd work it out, we'd hug it out, we'd be back on good terms, no problem, because I don't deserve all this. But then as Job reflects on reality, as things are, sin is not going to be dealt with through a conversation. Mortality is not going to be dealt with through a conversation. And death is not going to be dealt with through a conversation. Why they chose this morning to do the air conditioning, I cannot tell you. But uh, I can't stop them the way we did the tile guy. Sin mortality and death must be dealt with. Now, we show you, because it's pretty cool to see, the gospel according to Job. Look at fourteen, chapter fourteen, and who's got thirteen through seventeen. Oh, that you would hide me in Sheol, that you would conceal me until your wrath be passed, that you would appoint me a set time and remember me. If a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my service, I would wait till my renewal should come. You would call and I would answer you. You would long for the work of your hands, and then you would remember my steps. You would not keep watch over my sin. My transgression would be sealed up in a bag, and you would cover over my iniquity. What's the answer? What solves sin, mortality, and death? Resurrection. What if God were to hide me in Sheol? What if though a man die, he were to live again? That would solve the previous three problems. I don't need simply conversation. I need resurrection. Specifically, he needs the hope of resurrection. You think about the cut down tree and the dead body. The fact that there can be life after this death is what made it different for the tree and the man. And he says, what if I went down to Sheol and I were hidden from death? And though a man die, he were renewed, is that Hebrew word there. The only way for Job to stand with God will be for God to conquer death. That's it. If there is no resurrection, There is no hope. And this is the second time in Job, remember last time was when Job realized that what he really needed was a mediator. Somebody who could identify with his sorrows and yet stand with God on equal footing. And what happened after Job said this profound truth about what's needed as a mediator? He said, that can't happen. And then he goes, plunges into despair we get some of the really, really darkest stuff of the book. So what happens here? He utters this profound gospel truth that the only thing that will ever conquer sin, mortality, and death is resurrection. And then what does Job do? He says, not going to happen. And his eyes go back to the ash pile. They go back. He can't see beyond the pain of his circumstances. Whenever he can break out of that, whenever he can break out of that, he, God reveals some meaningful truth of the gospel to him. But then he quickly says, yeah, I don't see how God would do that. And whenever we take our eyes off the truth of the gospel, And put them back on our circumstances. The doors of heaven sort of slam shut. And we go back into our despair. And he goes back into lament. Job's longing is for eternal life. All he can see is life is hard and then you die. And Derek Thomas says he's almost at the point of seeing something beyond death. But then his ash heap gets his attention again. And so he glimpses heaven's door, and then it slams shut on him. Who's got 14, 19, and 20? As water wears away stones, and as torrents wash away the soil of the herd, so you destroy the hope of man. You prevail forever against him, and he passes on. You change his continents. And sent him away. That might be for me the hardest couple of verses in the book of Job. Job glimpsed the hope of resurrection. And then his circumstances, some of you have seen, not that I'm commending it, but the Godfather trilogy. It's an amazing movie. And, you know, Michael Corleone wants out of the family he wants to go legitimate he doesn't want to be in this life and he says every time i think i'm out they pull me back in something will happen Somebody's family will get murdered or something they'll have to retaliate they'll have to retaliate because you know monsters got a mom but that feeling uh, they pull me back in and that's what job's ash pile's doing that's what his sorrow and his circumstances and his brokenness are doing. He, he lifts up his eyes toward the hills. But instead of getting to the part of that that says, my help comes from the Lord, his eyes go back down to the ash pile. And he says, you snuff out the hope of people. The pain is excruciating. And, and on one point, He's not wrong. If there is no resurrection, there is no hope. There is none. You you can't solve sin, mortality, and death by clever conversations. You can't solve them by uh, theological precision. You can't solve them by piousness or devoutness. You can only solve death With life, with conquering death through the resurrection. And so he is not wrong. Let me read you two quotes to wrap up. Derek Thomas said, Only the doctrine of the resurrection and the final judgment can provide Job with an answer to his soul's discomfort. The judgment at the end of the age will demonstrate and vindicate God's perfect justice. And, And it is. You know, I've, I've said before, I don't know in in the new heavens and the new earth what level of detail we will understand about everything that happened in our lives. I don't know whether God will give us 60% of what we long for now or 100%. I, I, I don't know. The Bible doesn't say he'll give us 100%. We're still not omniscient. We still don't know everything. We're still not God. We're still finite creatures. I don't know how much we'll know. But I do know this, that at the moment of the last judgment, it will all be right in our minds. We will not have a single feeling of discomfort. That way that even now, if you, if you watch a trial and you're waiting for justice, it's a little bittersweet because it's not quite perfect. All the pieces don't quite fit together because human justice is always inadequate and incomplete. And on that day, we will look at what God has done and our entire mind and soul will be at peace and will rejoice that God is just and he is good and he is holy and we see it. We see it without the blinders of sin we see it without the the haziness of our fallen condition we see it clearly for what it is that God is good and believing that that's true is such an essential part of hope in this life until we get there because we don't see it that way today even when we believe it that's not what we see We don't look at what happens in this life and say, well, obviously, you guys, God is good all the time. One more quote from uh, Christopher Ash. One of the most significant features of the book of Job is that from beginning to end, we know something that Job does not know. That's that we know why all this is happening and Job doesn't. Why? Why is the book of Job written this way? He says first we gain from the sufferings of Job a deep insight into the sufferings of Christ. The speeches Job gives the speeches of Job give us a unique insight into what it feels like for a believer to experience God forsakenness. And therefore they help us to understand and feel the darkness of the cross. And Pause there for a minute. That makes us a little bit uncomfortable. It's why we're fighting so much in our minds in the book of Job, that Job is not perfect, that Job does have sin, and that all sin and fallen short of the glory of God, and everybody deserves some bad things in their life. And, and, but that's not what this book's about. God's fighting us hard to make this book not about that. And in part, because Job is a type of Christ. He's the one who suffers who did not deserve it. And we have no problem saying that with Christ, because Christ is sinless. But we have a little bit of a problem saying that with Job. Well, everybody deserves something. Even though the book begins, Job doesn't deserve none of this. And the book ends, Job didn't deserve none of this. So just remember, he's a type of Christ. And we see, can you imagine? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Up to that point, there was not one second in all of eternity. Not just the age of this world and this creation. There was not one second in all of eternity where up to that point, the fellowship between the Father and the Spirit and the Son was broken. Not a thing. Did not exist. And what what Jesus feels and experiences in that moment on the cross is not simply in first this idea we have of, of, of fire and wrath against sin. What Jesus experiences first is the Father turning his face away from the Son. And he cries out, My God, this is what it feels like to be condemned? And when Job is here on his asheat, that's the way he's talking. And he's right if there's not resurrection. He's right that that's what all of this suffering would be a foretaste of, if not for resurrection. And then Ash says the second reason beyond this giving us unique insight to the cross is that we are naturally prone to keep slipping into not knowing what we know. I want to read you something here. Oh. I just realized <laughs> as I put in the Kindle page, which probably doesn't help me on this. Second to find it. Uh. We go. I get to edit all this out so I don't look like an idiot I'm, I just look like an idiot to my friends and it says there is there is A pain for the believer that gives suffering a unique sharpness. Suffering is the common experience of the human race. All sorts of people get ill. All kinds of people are touched by war, famine, and earthquake. And yet suffering touches the believer with a sharper and uniquely piercing pain. How so? Believers do not necessarily and always suffer more or worse. They do not get more illness or suffer worse from natural disasters. So why is the pain of a believer sharper? It's what is sometimes called the problem of pain. The worshiper truly believes that God is sovereign. He or she really believes that the living God is in control of his world. And so when suffering comes, it must be God who ultimately sends him. After all, he is in control, is he not? It is not just that it hurts, although Job's suffering hurts abominably. It's more than this. It's the conviction that it is God who, in some sense, is doing the hurting. I'm going to skip a little bit. We saw in the previous chapter how Job's comforters get around this problem by dogmatic denial. Undeserved suffering never happens. How do we know? Well, if someone suffers, it proves he deserves it. That's a circular argument clung to at the price of honesty. Their worldview can only be believed if we close our eyes to the reality of the world we're supposed to be viewing, where there are believers with a clear conscience, no hidden sin, trusting in God for forgiveness, walking in the light with them, and yet who suffer terribly. It is a problem. But it is important for us to notice that it is a problem only for the believer. When unbelievers say to us they are troubled by the problem of pain and the unfairness of suffering in the world, we may say to them, why are you troubled? I, as a believer, am troubled, but why should you be? For you do not believe in a living God who is in control and who is good. So why should you expect there to be any logic or fairness? And yet you do, don't you? I wonder if that is because we are deeply hardwired to know there is a living God who is in control and who is just. The irony is that at the moment we begin to feel this perplexity, we must admit that we ought to believe in a living God. What page was that? No. Junk. Got it LFS. 64 to 66. (laughs) We suffer, and maybe one of the things that we should do is ask ourselves in our suffering, if an unbeliever felt this way, what would I tell them? Because that's what we would need to have preached to us. <laughs> because in our suffering, we often think like unbelievers. And I don't even necessarily mean in a sinful way, though it's a first commandment problem. Um, so it is sinful in that regard. <laughs> it's a failure to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. But I don't say it to beat us up. I say it to help us think about how to move forward, is what would I tell an unbeliever? Well, I would tell an unbeliever, it makes no sense for them to feel this way. Because they should just eat, drink, be married, tomorrow they die. If something causes them pain, they should run from it as quickly as they can and do whatever it takes to get rid of it because there's no rhyme or reason to any of this. And they they certainly shouldn't be surprised and they certainly shouldn't think anything's unfair. Why would I tell them? Well, I would tell them that because the fact that they're feeling the way they're feeling shows that everything that they reject is true the sense of fairness that they feel, the sense of this is not right, is the most correct thing that they believe and that can draw us back to God and trusting and hoping not wishing don't ever hear me say hope and you hear wish Hope is this. Hope is we will all be raised. Hope is in the twinkling of an eye. Hope is that what Jesus did on that cross ended with, it is finished. Not, okay, y'all, I did my part. Now come along and get your act together and let's see this thing through. What Jesus finished his work with was, It is finished. And so it's a confident hope. It's a certain hope. It's a sure hope, which is the only kind of hope the Bible knows, that the resurrection does conquer sin, mortality, and death. And therefore, all we have to do, he says with a smile, recognizing how hard it is, it's very emotionally difficult. But it is the simplest thing in the world. Take your eyes off the heap and put them on the resurrection. That's it. That's all it is. It's that simple. (laughs) Take your eyes off the heap. Your eyes off the the boils that you're scraping off with broken pottery. Your eyes off your, your clueless and comfortless friends. Your eyes off this and your eyes on that resurrection. It's all we have to do. And it is the only thing that will ever work. Every other type of comfort will hit its limit. Because there is no other thing. When people say, well, it will get better. okay, until I face mortality and die. Well, it could be worse. Yeah, yeah, I got this mortality death problem coming. Well, it'll all turn out right in the end. Not if I die. (laughs) You see, every type of hope someone offers you in anything else has no answer here. So why would you put Band-Aid solutions on your suffering if the solution that you need for this list is resurrection and, oh, by the way, this can also comfort everything else? The hope of this comforts everything else. Not makes it painless. Not makes us forget it. Comforts moves us from the ash pile to truth, life, hope, and God. And that's what his friends are missing. And Job here gets so close that the hurt of the ash heap pulls him back in. And we should be humble and gracious with one another when the path of their recovery from grief is not the path that we expect it to be. This is grief. This is happy in Christ. And we say to them, just, just go there. The Shortest place. Straight line. Go there. And as long as our friends are making process, progress, moving away from grief, yeah, this is good. But has anyone ever seen this in the face of real grief? Has anyone ever seen the straight line recovery method from suffering? And this is consummation with Christ. And then we go on this is life the ash heap's very real unless you're willing to tell people that their ash heap isn't that ashy in which case you're a pretty crummy friend you have to be ready for my snake drawing I did waves getting higher and higher so I'm clearly a post-millennialist